Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Farah Peterson is a law professor and legal historian at the University of Virginia School of Law. In her first essay for The Scholar, published in our winter 2019 issue, she examined John Adams' defense of eight British soldiers charged with killing Crispus Attucks, an unarmed black man, on March 5, 1770. Despite how they have long been characterized, Adams' arguments, she wrote, were hardly the ultimate expression of principle and rule of law. In our new issue, Peterson turns to yet another dangerous myth of the revolutionary era, namely that Black Americans in bondage did not want to be free. Given the ongoing protests against police brutality here and around the world, Peterson's work feels all the more vital as we enter into a newly invigorated national conversation about race and how to rectify historical injustices. Farah Peterson joins us from her home in Virginia. Thanks so much for talking to me, Farah. It's, it's very nice to talk. Thank you. So both in your last essay for us and in this one, The Patriot Slave, you're revising some pretty foundational and dangerous myths that we've been telling ourselves as a nation for centuries. And in this essay, you pull together so many seemingly disparate threads, like the life of William Lee, one of George Washington's slaves, and several paintings, including Watson and the Shark by John Singleton Copley and John Trumbull's 1780 portrait of Washington. Um, So I was just wondering, what was the starting point for you in writing this essay? Uh, Well, I guess that question has two parts. Um, First is the the general theme. Uh, These two pieces are connected to a strong conviction I have that the stories we tell about who we are matter. And that when those stories, whether intentionally constructed, like the, the story we tell about John Adams, or passively imbibed, like the Patriot Slave, deny the experience of black Americans, it, it risks um, shutting out of the community of people who matter a large part of the American citizenry, and that's a problem. So as a historian, when I see these myths perpetuating, it makes me want to say, wait a second, let's take another look. Um, let's see how we could tell the story differently. Um, a second answer to your question is, where did the inspiration for this particular piece come from? 
And I was actually on a trip to the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. with my good friend, the um, brilliant art historian Catherine Roach um, from Virginia Commonwealth University. And we stood in front of this Copley painting uh, for about a half an hour. And I had seen the painting before because uh, in Washington, D.C., the National Gallery of Art is one of the few places you can let little kids just run and run and run down long hallways in the winter. So I've spent quite a bit of time there. Um, but seeing it down along, uh, through open doors down a hallway, what you notice is the shark, which is frankly a preposterous figure in the painting. It's obvious that Copley had never seen a shark himself. Um, standing in front of it and really allowing myself to look, I noticed for the first time how special that central figure was, the African-American figure in the painting. And my friend mentioned to me that art historians have compared the rope in his hand to an umbilical cord. And suddenly all of these themes that I mentioned in the essay started coming together with me, um, directed at this one question, what is this man thinking? His expression is so serious. Um, he has such trepidation and such anxiety as he seems to be undecided about whether to rescue the man who's in the water. And it reminded me of questions that I've had about what black patriots who served in the Patriot Army in the Revolutionary War must have been thinking and what, um, what psychological struggles they must have endured uh, to make the choices they did. And, and so it was that, that encounter with this really stunning piece of art that formed the specific seed for this essay. So how does this myth play out in the present? In the essay, you allude to the black vote, for instance. I'm using scare quotes there. Um, and you also refer to lifting COVID restrictions, despite the overwhelming evidence that the virus disproportionately infects and kills black Americans. And of course, we did not know this when the article went to print. But in the past few weeks, we've seen a massive uprising in the wake of George Floyd's murder and a rekindling of the Black Lives Matter protests. So how do those contemporary issues intersect with the myth of the patriot slave? Well, I think that where you see it is in the surprise that people feel. Uh, the drama, the passion, um, and the vehemence of the protests that we see today. Uh, but, but where is that surprise coming from? If the colors in these videos, these horrific videos of police brutality were, were switched, and what we were talking about was a long trend of um, instances coming viscerally to light of horrific police brutality against white Americans, you would expect there to be a loud public outcry. Um, you would expect there to be um, massive movements for rectification, especially if, um, if many in power were saying that everything was okay. Uh, the fact that many have been surprised by this suggests that we are still trapped in a view of Black Americans as sort of passive Americans, rather than uh, sharing in the same character as the rest of the nation. Yeah, I think that really comes out in, in one of the lines from your essay that I want to highlight, which is, uh, like all intimate relationships that involve force, that between master and slave relied on a great deal of fiction. The master told the slave that ownership was benevolence. The slave performed fidelity for the master. 
So, I mean, there's a lot of fiction, a lot of lying at play here, both in the revolutionary era and afterwards when slavery was still legal and also today. I mean, in the centuries since these fictions were invented, have any layers of them dropped away? Well, of course they have, because um, slavery isn't part of our experience anymore. Uh, and so the, the question is, how could a myth that was so dependent on a brutal, a martial enforcement of white supremacist law in antebellum America survive into a century in which things have so dramatically changed? Um, how could it have survived the 13th Amendment? And I think the answer to that is has got to be segregation. That, you know, black people are not performing fidelity anymore. But some of the same kinds of myths about black American identity uh, that so characterize the 19th century view uh, can survive in a slightly changed form in the 20th century. In the 19th century, you had on one side of the coin, uh, Nat Turner, Denmark Vesey, these um, terrifying um, uh, insurrectionists. And on the other side, the docile Mammy or, or Billy Lee. Um, now, uh, one, one problem that I think that America is newly starting to address is that the black American is figured in public commentary and politics only as either what uh, Donald Trump calls a thug or a rioter, or on the other side, uh, what others imagine as sort of happy democratic voters who come out to the polls at appointed times and then retreat into their segregated enclaves. And uh, to the extent that black Americans are only discussed in one of these two characterizations in the public sphere um, and in the halls of power, uh, we are not treated as full citizens who are here all the time as part of the life of the nation and require the same, um, the same investment, uh, the, the same attention and the same voice as other citizens. Well, so let's talk a little bit more about Billy Lee or William Lee, one of George Washington's slaves and a central figure in your essay. You write about how the idea of Lee, perpetuated in paintings and prints and white men's words, is really at odds with the record of the man himself, what little we have. He seems like one of the clearest personifications of the patriot slave myth that you're trying to address. So why was he such a battleground for these narratives at the time? Well, so I'm not so sure that the patriot slave idea doesn't apply to Billy Lee. I think that he was very proud of his service in the Patriots Army, and that if you were to ask him, he would say, um, as he did frequently in his aging years, that serving beside George Washington was the proudest moment of his life. Uh, the question is not so much, why did people think that about Billy Lee? Uh, the question is, why did Americans start to think of his character and his experience as archetypal, when in fact, he is the exception. And the majority of black Americans making choices about which side to support during that war, uh, chose to support the loyalists because the British army was promising freedom. And the, the common theme, um, if there is one, is self-determination. Some people chose to fight with the Patriots because their individual life stories, their personal loyalties, um, their hopes and dreams for their own futures 
pointed in that direction. Um, but for the vast majority, uh, it pointed elsewhere. So why, why did Billy Lee come to characterize the black experience of the war, the, the character of black Americans during that war? That's the, the mystery that this essay tries to address. So what were some of the reasons why this was perpetuated? I mean, obviously, looking back, we are only speculating about the psychological motives of those who were pushing this agenda. But can you talk about some of the, you know, the reasons that you sketch out in the essay? Well, there was a shift. Um, During the period of the revolution, many leading white Americans, even slave owners, uh, spoke explicitly of slavery as a tragic and unfortunate accident of history that they assumed would fade away on its own. That allowed these Enlightenment figures to feel somewhat complacent about uh, the contradictions in their own lives. That underwent a pretty dramatic shift in uh, intellectual and political culture after the invention of the cotton gin in the 1790s, which started to make cotton growing a lot more profitable and uh, slaves a lot more necessary to that business model. And, and so you started to see a dramatic shift in the way Southern politicians were talking about slavery. It went from being an unfortunate necessity that um, they simply couldn't imagine how to do away with right away uh, to something they started describing as a positive good, something that was good not only for white Americans, but also the best possible fate for black Americans. Um, and some pretty dramatic examples of that kind of talk came out in the uh, congressional debates over the Missouri Compromise, some of which I quote in the essay. Yeah, I mean, some of the quotations that you pull are impressive, I guess, in their ardor and their blindness. You know, the the way that some of these Southerners clung to the myth that slaves wanted to stay enslaved in the face of all available evidence, you know, like, as you say, right at the beginning of the essay, 20,000 enslaved people fought for the British when they were promised emancipation seems like a pretty good indication that slaves did not want to stay slaves. And then, you know, an untold number tried to escape, even George Washington's. And, you know, when Southerners say things like, few slaves left plantations in the South during the revolution, or quote, that they have a disposition to be attached to as well as to respect those whom they are taught to regard as superiors, or that, quote, slaveholders are kind masters, as men usually are kind husbands, parents, and friends. Like, who are they talking to when they're saying this stuff? Are Southerners talking to each other? Are they talking to Northerners? Are Northerners also saying this? Yeah, I, I think that they're trying to weave a narrative that avoids picturing themselves as villains. Um, this was a, a story that emerged uh, that, as I put in the essay, is really the other side of the very powerful emotion of fear that Southern slave owners must have felt. Um, and there's a psychological need. If we go, you know, we leave history and, and, and dabble in psychology a moment um, to picture oneself as a good person and to avoid the very natural and sensible fear they must have felt uh, with stories of paternalism and benevolence. Um, and uh, in part because it was so deeply a part of the founding myth of George Washington, and in part because the entire nation started to think of itself as the inheritors of his special virtues. Uh, North and South, this figure of Billy Lee became very important to the national identity. Yeah, their words and 
the paintings that you reference by John Singleton Copley and John Trumbull remind me of a lot of the statues of Confederate generals and slave traders that are quite hurriedly being pulled down today after what seemed like years of debating whether we should do it. Um, And many of those statues were put up by organizations like the Daughters of the Confederacy, whose mission is to explicitly rewrite the memory of the Civil War. And of course, they're not the only ones who like to talk about how the Civil War was really about states' rights um, or, you know, perpetuate the myth of the lost cause. So given that statues are so hotly debated um, and so heatedly pulled down now and that um, several paintings are quite central to the argument in your essay, what do you think the role of art is in perpetuating these myths? Well, these um, monuments that you mentioned, they're playing a dual role. Yes, they're art, uh, but they're also nationalism. They're imposing an assertion about what America is all about, who our heroes are, what um, qualities an American statesman are virtues, and then who the side characters are, who the villains are in our story, or who doesn't deserve mention. And, you know, like these founding narratives that I've addressed in both of these essays, Um, it's important to take a second look at monuments that we allow to characterize our skylines and lead our wide avenues. What are we telling ourselves about who we are as a people? Who does that narrative leave out? So I do think that there's something in common between the project of this essay and the efforts of American citizens all around the country to um, recharacterize, reimagine old Confederate statues. So what work do you think is left to be done in dismantling the myth of the Patriot slave or the myth of Black Lives and the Boston Massacre? And do you think you'll ever be done writing these essays? Well, you know, that's one of the wonderful things about the discipline of history is that our field is iterative. Um, we are constantly trying to arrive at a true story about the past. But as the nation's story continues, new facets of that story come to light or or seem newly important because different people are telling the story and different perspectives um, are considered valuable. And so it's not so much a, a process of destroying what was before and building a new monument in its place. Um, there will be no end to the iterative retellings of the American story. It's about respecting the process and having the humility to admit that some of the stories that we've been telling ourselves are are wrong or they're incomplete and leaving room at the table for new people to come up, sit down and start telling their version of the story. Um, It's that open, that invitation um, that my essays are asking for Um, not to replace something ossified and old with something ossified and new. We have links in the show notes to Farah Peterson's two essays for us, The Patriot Slave in our most recent issue, and Black Lives and the Boston Massacre from winter 2019. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 